0: Welcome to Talk with the Texan, Money and Life with Troy Eckert. This program is thought-provoking, informative, entertaining, and down to business. We face facts and ideas about how to make, protect, and build your net worth. You'll get over three decades of frontline experiences and real-life examples of what to do and the pitfalls to avoid. Now,
1: here's Troy Eckert. Hey, this is Troy Eckert. I am Talk with the Texan, Money and Live. Thank you very much for coming to the show and thank you very much for joining us today. The show is Talking with the Texan because that's where I was born and raised and I have been developing my career based on basic premises, which is your word is your bond. Life is about fairness and accuracy and transparency. And the topic of the show is money and life. And the idea is that everybody in life has to figure out how they're going to get through it. And usually money plays an important role. Hey, listen, if you ever get a chance and want to call in on the show to give suggestions or ideas, you can always dial the the number, which is 866-472-5790. You can always send me an email if you'd like as well and uh, contact me by the show. But the idea for me is that I'm here to provide what I hope, hope to be insightful information that you, regardless of your net worth, regardless of where you're at in your career, regardless of where you're at in your investment path in life. Maybe the information can provide you some tools and some information that will help you be more successful, avoid some of the pitfalls, and allow you to grow yourself not only on a personal level, but also as a successful entrepreneur successful investor. You know, one of the reasons I thought about this show when I first decided to do it uh, a few months back is that I've spent my entire career raising capital, working with investors, and watching just a, a myriad of investment opportunities across the landscape. And what's interesting and dynamic, if you, if you have a career like I have since 1985, I'm going on 37 years in the investment world, you start to look back and go, wow, 37 years just is not that long a time. And as you start to think about all the different changes that have occurred in various investment sectors and the ups and the downs in the political changes and the tax law changes and the interest rate changes and the demands. And then you have the black swan disruptive events, such as like the 9-11 catastrophe and the Persian Gulf War and the Black Monday in the 1980s. You could just go through a whole series of events that play a big, big part in what is going to ultimately affect not only your money, but it's going to affect your life. You know, so we've been dealing with this uh, COVID-19 pandemic for the last, I don't know, year and a half, two years. Uh, I keep telling people, I really don't expect that it's going to go away anytime soon because if it's not COVID-19, if it's not the Delta variant, if it's not the Lambda or the Mu or the, you know, whatever the name they come up with on the next variant, the fact of the matter is, is that it has forever changed the way America thinks about viruses and diseases. And it's also made a clear path and change about how a disease or at least a health issue can change the landscape when it comes to investments. I mean, there are many, many thousands of of businesses that have gone under in the last 24 months as a result of the COVID-19 shutdown and and all the mandates. And so you start looking at being an investor in a restaurant or investments in rental property an investment in uh, what I would call consumer businesses, ice cream shops, et cetera. And you start saying, wow, there's a new element of risk that I did not put into my original business plan that today I have to be paying attention to. Well, You know, I'm kind of a a macro thinker when I think about things because my primary business since 1985 is I've been involved in the U.S. oil and gas industry, and my job has been to match high net worth investors to um, investors who want to be in direct ownership of oil and gas energy investments here in the States. But through that career, I've also done enormous amount of investing of my own money uh, outside of the oil and gas space, real estate, all kinds of different crazy investments. And the truth of the matter is, is that you learn a lot from talking to other investors who have come before you, who have made attempts at different investments in startups and investment sectors, made those initial investments in emerging markets. And you start looking back and you start asking yourself, you know, how many of those ideas were good or bad? What changed the the metrics? What changed the dynamics of that particular investment over time for the good or the bad? Um, how do you recognize the next opportunity when to get in? And then you you have to, you have to solve that itch in the palm of your hand. Remember, the, the itch is that either on the back of your neck, meaning something's wrong, something doesn't feel right. That you know, could be walking in a, a dark back alley or it could be right as you're about to make an investment decision. And you think to yourself, I just don't feel quite comfortable with this. I just don't feel like it's the right decision. So what I want to remind everybody is that in in each one of the shows each week, I'm trying to touch on things from human character to uh, thinking like an entrepreneur. What makes an entrepreneur? Is it born? Is the person born to be a leader? Are they they actually trained to be a leader? Is it something that evolves? Um, And I try to touch on different subjects because I've had a lot of exposure to it. It doesn't mean I'm an expert in every single category, but it does mean that I, I believe I have enough information that will be of value or worth to you as I go through it. So today, I want to talk about real estate. Now, again, I am not a real estate guru or expert. I have done, in my view, a lot of real estate transactions. But again, my primary real estate investing has been in the oil and gas sector, buying producing wells, buying minerals, buying pipelines, et cetera. So a lot of real estate, but not what I would call a traditional real estate investment strategy or direction. I want to talk to you about traditional real estate today. I want to talk to you about some of the things I see going on in the market. And it has a lot to do with money and life. So I'm going to start off with a couple of short stories and tell you a little bit about things that I always think about from the standpoint of supply and demand, about having uh, overheated markets, about how some of that uh, overheated demand or or overheated supply really does affect your own portfolio, even if you don't consider yourself to be uh, in, in the actual highway of that particular sector. What I mean by that is this, you know, I might have a portfolio of 50 or 60 Rental properties, and I've owned them for five or 10 years. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't really care about what's going on in the housing market right now because I own my portfolio. I'm not really buying anymore. Um, I don't really care if I sell them because I'm not trying to liquidate. I like the cash flow. But it does affect your portfolio if there's a lot of things that do uh, start to position themselves where it can either deteriorate the value of your um, assets, the rental houses that you own. Or if it causes a change in the tenant occupancy of your rent houses, either because other rental properties become more attractive as far as more modern and new, but at the same or lower rent rate. Or if you find yourself in a position where a supply side being uh, too low creates a higher demand and all of a sudden you have people knocking on your door wanting to pay a lot higher prices for rent and you can go up on your rent rate as a result of rising demand but maybe that's just a short-term blip and, and you can't get yourself caught up in that it's a one-time event or it's a very uh, cyclical type of environment as a, as a result of higher demand for rental properties, but it's maybe a two or three-year cycle. So all of this goes into consideration when you think about real estate because real estate is very cyclical. Now, one thing that's been very, very abnormal is the the length of this particular cycle. So the cycle, in my view, and from talking to many of our Uh, partners who are heavy, heavy real estate investors that I consider the experts in that field. um, It's been almost a 13-year run. So 2008 was the big housing collapse, took about 12 months for that to flush out. Uh, The investors that were heavy in cash and not heavy in assets were able to go out and look at really, really distressed real estate assets and began to pick up those assets for pennies on the dollar. In some cases, you might be able to buy something for, you know, 25 to 30 cents on the dollar from the previous year's value. You might say, well, man, that's a great deal. "Hmm, It depends. And my dad had a saying, he said, you know, you don't want to be the guy that's so focused on what you're doing, you forget your fundamentals. And he said, you know, it's like the guy that shows up in the morning to the, uh, the field of watermelon and you're buying all those watermelons for 50 cents a piece because you're the first guy there and it is a beautiful crop of watermelons. You want to hurry up and get to market. So you go to market, and by the time you set up your truck, you realize there's 20 other trucks at that market, and everybody there is selling their watermelons for $0.25. Cents. So you might be selling as many watermelons as everybody else, but you bought them at $0.50. Cents, so you're the fastest guy going out of business because their underlying market value is half of what you paid. So it is very much about the buy side. You have to make your money on the buy side. You have to also recognize when the appropriate exit time is so you can uh, you know, safeguard that, that opportunity for profit and safeguard that value lift by making sure that you understand there, there is or should be at least always on your business plan, some type of an exit, whether it's today, tomorrow, or in the future, because at some point in time, maybe what you own comes out of favor or maybe what you own is better served by uh, reallocating those dollars by selling off assets or changing to a different asset class. So here's what I want to cover today. One of the things I, I see coming around the, the corner, which to me has been brewing for well over two years, is the complete uh, out of balance, in my view, out of balance uh, valuation of property. And let's just take uh, real estate in the residential market over the last 20 months during this COVID-19. So all of a sudden, you get this really, really nasty one-time black swan event. Everybody gets shut down. You have a complete disruption in in uh, human movement. Uh, everybody's staying home. Nobody's going to the movies. You have this panic about, Hey, this could be a really nasty, deadly pandemic, which has not turned out to be a very minor scale compared to what was being uh, preached back in March of last year. And now all of a sudden you realize people are saying, look, I need to get away from high density living. I want to move to the suburbs. I want to get out of apartments and I want to find a home. Uh, the government comes in and puts out uh, historically low interest rates for mortgages. Uh, They expedite the mortgage process. They require less equity being put down. All all the ingredients that you want to see that encourages home ownership, all the ingredients you want to see that encourages new home development. Because at the end of the day, that's really what takes people's mind off of a bad situation is get them busy, get them busy building, working, buying, moving. And of course, that's the same thing that happened after 9-11. George Bush started promoting the housing market. He wanted everybody to think about buying houses. He lowered the capital gains rate. He got people selling real estate they'd held for 10 or 15 years. And the economy boomed after 9 11 as a result of pumping up the real estate market. But the same thing, in my view, has been happening the last, really the last 13 years, which is after the 2008 housing debacle, that push to drive real estate markets continued and then further got a little bit of a steroid shot. Well, actually, a massive steroid shot. Uh, When the government decided to throw all the stimulus money out, they decided to come in with low interest rates, and they really started pushing a mandate about let's get America buying new homes, building new homes, and get our construction industry and manufacturing back to full speed, and that'll get this economy back to a full start. The problem with that is that, is it really a true market boom, or is it false demand? So one of the things about real estate investing, in my view, is I'm not really interested in a macro real estate view from the standpoint of my own portfolio, because why? I don't have the depth of pocket. You know, when you get a large institutional developer, they're going to go out and buy two, three, 400 acres to turn into a multi-home subdivision with retail, shopping, and all the other ancillary byproducts like elementary schools, et cetera. They're going to do it in three, four, or five areas. They may cover three, four, or five states. They are truly an institutional developer. I don't have that kind of bandwidth, and I'm assuming most of my listeners don't either. So when I think about real estate, I'm thinking about how do I find something that makes sense in the market today, but also it's going to have to have some long-term assessments with regard to maybe hold time, holding time, exit strategy, entitlement, in functionality, like, like what's it going to be? What, what, what's that piece of raw land going to look like? What am I going to do with that residential home or homes that I buy? And is it something I plan on owning ten years or twenty years, or is it just to buy, allow the rental income to give me a return on my money, and then looking for a liquidation point sometime in the next five to seven years? So what I've got to do is I've got to figure out one which sector of real estate, traditional real estate, I want to be in, and once I've determined that, I got to start looking for what I would consider macro view of that sector. So, in the case of uh, let's just use apartment complexes, for example, uh, apartment complexes are multifamily, range all over the board. It could be small eight plexes, all the way up to you know thousand unit apartment complexes. And again, this is not my area of expertise. It's an area that I have enough information and I have enough partners invested in it that I believe I've gathered information, looked at and been associated with I could give, uh, I think, professional comment about. But anytime you start looking at a sector that's being driven, by such growth as what we've seen in the multifamily. Um, sometimes like me, I'm driving along the highway and I've seen all these brand new apartment complexes going up literally like popping a bag of popcorn over the last five or six years here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I mean, they're going up every single corner. I mean, like if there's an open space, you're going to see a three to four story building. To me, they look like prisons. They're, they're all in squares, got a center courtyard. They got these uh, open air hallways, It's all been done on efficiency, but at the end of the day, they're all very similar in architectural style, and they're going up everywhere you you find open space. And so you start asking yourself a couple of years ago, you say, so when does the rental market start to look like it's not in favor for that type of apartment at the cost they're having to charge because of cost of construction, cost of materials, uh, land, et cetera? And when do you finally find that there is not enough demand to fill those spaces? And then what happens? What happens to your property in terms of occupancy? What happens in terms of your revenue? What happens in terms of your potential exit strategy? Selling that apartment, once you get an apartment complex, once you get it full, once you get the rent rates up, once you get your highest net operating income you can get to get that best cap rate value on the exit that you can possibly get. When is it time to exit? Some people will say, well, we don't want to exit. We just like our rate of return and we're going to sit back and enjoy it. And in maybe seven to 10 years, we might consider based on market to exit. Well, that's good. That's good that you have that luxury. But I think most investors, from what I can tell, are always looking for that entry point. They're looking for that hold time. They're looking for the exit strategy and they're looking at that overall rate of return or return on investment not only before, but after taxes are considered and kind of what that looks like in terms of, of total return uh, year after year, as well as the, uh, the timing of that exit. So when I look at false demand, which I think we have today, we have a demand that's been driven by a, a multitude of factors. The first and foremost was this COVID-19. It was a pure panic, buy land in Wyoming and Montana and Oklahoma and all these different states, buy in the suburbs, get out of the high density areas, buy-in school districts that were a lot more uh, free with regard to the mask and the mandates and buy-in states that were pro-freedom and, and less about constriction based on uh, o- overreaching by the, the governors and the legislature in those different states. In other words, people moved and they moved very quickly and they did not care the, the cost. What they were doing was saying, I need to do something to protect my family and my future livelihood or my lifestyle and I better move now because it looks like once the, the herd started to move, everybody felt like they were being left behind. So what you found was enormous demand that came out of nowhere that was further topped off by really, really historic low interest rates for mortgages. And then you also had, in my view, a, a very highly supportive uh, regulatory environment of the last uh, 24 months pertaining getting loans. So you had great rates. You had houses that everybody wanted in the right locations. Builders going crazy building them. Everybody wanted the new shiny bike in the stores. They wanted the new houses, not the old houses. You couldn't really get anybody to do uh, remodeling because everybody's in lockdown or being paid stimulus money didn't want to work. So, I'm going to go get a turnkey house. I'm going to go find a residential brand new home that's going to come gift wrapped with a brand new yard and everything looks pretty and painted. It's all in a brand new neighborhood with new neighbors and a new park. And I'm I'm willing to pay 30, 40% higher than I did a year ago. The problem is the false demand is how does that really look? How does that really look when you think about the number of homes built in the demand? And the key I'm going to get to in this entire show is the following. There is a level of common sense in the real estate market as far as looking ahead. It's, it's the practical assumption of what makes sense in what market and why. You know, there's a, there's a good saying in real estate, you can't eat dirt. I found that out the hard way. But really what it means is, is that if you have an asset that has a cost of capital, whether it be cash, you pay cash for the property, you have debt. There is a time value of money and there's loss opportunity cost, And so you've got to make the decision when you deploy your capital that is going to make you a rate of return that's better than inflation and that's a higher rate of return that'll help you continue to grow your portfolio and grow your wealth as a result of the return that you make. So I you know, take a million dollars, and want to turn it into a million, one hundred thousand dollars. I'd like to make 10% of my money. I'd like to compound that over 30 years and end up with four or five, six million dollars by the time I retire. Regardless of where you're at, it's important to understand that real estate is about trying to garnish low risk investment class with reasonable but above market rate returns with a time frame that gives you the ability to let the asset mature while you're generating a your revenue or at least increasing the asset value that's better than just the, the pure de- deterioration of inflation. So when I look at false demand, what causes false demand? Well, first off, it's very loose lending practices. This is the same thing that happened in the Great Depression. It's the same thing that happened in 2008. It's the same, excuse me, in 2001, right after the 9-11. Bush came out with really low rates. Bush came out with proactive, basically accept anybody that applied for a mortgage. And they were lending money to people who really didn't even have jobs with minimal down payment. We had the same thing after 2008. Once the housing crisis cleared up, we started seeing as much as they could because the damage was already done. They tried to clean up the foreclosed house. They tried to get everybody on their feet. And then in 2011 and 12, they started coming back out saying, yeah, it's going to be harder to qualify. But the truth be known is people are still getting a lot of loans that probably shouldn't. People are buying real estate with cash that uh, were able to do so because they either put them in joint ventures or LLCs. But at the end of the day, when we had loose lending policies in the Great Recession in 2001, and like we see currently starting since the pandemic last year, what you see is you start seeing... A false demand because people are buying real estate that probably really don't qualify. They don't have enough equity put in the the project or investment to make it painful if they decide to walk or let it go into default. And with those loose lending practices and policies, you end up with a scenario that there is a really, really higher rise in demand that probably otherwise wouldn't be there. You take that false demand with those uh, lending policies, and now you start saying, you, you top that on top of what was already an extremely liquid market, meaning that the liquidity ratio around the globe was probably one of the highest it's been in history. People just didn't have anything to invest in. So massive amounts of liquid cash coupled by a stimulus, coupled by a pandemic, making people make decisions to move around, followed by a government drop in Fed fund rates and, and low interest rates and, and easier to get mortgages. And you've got the perfect, the perfect, perfect storm for what I would call an overheated real estate market that didn't have a lot of substance behind it without these other uh, factors interfering with it. So, you know, when you have lower qualifications, pretty much people who normally wouldn't have bought a house now are buying houses. And guess what's gonna happen? When the, when the market changes, when there's higher consumer costs, when inflation kicks in, they're gonna have to make a choice between living and paying a mortgage. They're gonna choose living. They're gonna have to make a decision between do I dump this house I overpaid 35% for and go find me someplace less expensive to live? Yes, I'm going to have to do that because gasoline's going to cost more, food's higher, and my electricity's higher, and utilities are higher. Am I going to move out of that more expensive apartment? And I hear the multifamily experts tell me, oh, no, no, no. All these people that are going to lose their homes are going to come to our fancy apartments. So you're going to allow somebody is my question, but I said, you're going to allow people who defaulted on their mortgage with now has bad credit. You're going to approve them to move into your class A expensive apartment because you think since they lost their house, they're going to make a better tenant in your apartment. Hmm, that's interesting. So I guess that's going to help your pro forma. When I look at the cap rate, I'm willing to pay for your apartment. And I have to look at the balance of your uh, tenants and recognize that maybe 10, 20, 30% of your tenants are former homeowners who defaulted and walked away from their mortgage. I want you to think about what's happening in the real estate market today. Real estate is a phenomenal investment. Real estate offers you multiple different sectors to invest in. Real estate is something that will always be here. But it does have a very cyclical uh, cyclical element to it, which is knowing when to get in, knowing how long to stay, and knowing when to exit. So in the back half of the show, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about cap rates. We're going to talk about a cap rate compression, which I think is going on and we're going to talk about where the United States is today and what may be happening as far as a forward look, as far as a possible stagflation or even a recession as it relates to what real estate values may or may not do. Hey, listen, this is Troy Eckerd. Talk with the Texan Money and Life. The number is 866-472-5790. I'll see you on the back half of the show. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Are you ready to hear from investors and get insight on different asset classes? Join host Troy Eckert for the program. Talk with the Texan, money and life. Troy works with high net worth investors and is ready to bring you the secrets he's learned. In his 35 years of alternative investment experience, along with his guest experts. If you want value, you'll need to listen in live every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one. Hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business.
2: Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report, live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google.
1: Play my favorite Voice America podcast on
0: TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work.
2: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN. It's time to
0: take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune into The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
1: Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: This is Talk with a Texan, Money and Life. To reach Troy Eckert or his guest on the live program, we invite you to call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to Troy at talkwithatexan.com. Now
1: back to the show. Hey, welcome back. This is Troy Eckert. I am Talk with a Texan, Money and Life. This is a show about money learning investments, learning about life, learning how they're all integrated and come together. Today's show in the first half was talking about the real estate market, kind of trying to help you figure out a little bit about the real estate market and what makes it move and what makes it a very, very viable and very strong investment asset to put in your portfolio. But there's a lot of things that many real estate investors simply may not be paying as close attention to as they should. We've been talking about what's taken place over the last 24 months with the COVID-19 and the massive stimulus that the U.S. government has put into the market. And this is not just here in the U.S., but it's all over the world. But specifically, when I address what's going on in the real estate market here in the United States, some of the things we talked about in the first half of the show, just to recap, was talking about the things like, I don't know, false demand and what that looks like as far as maybe much of the real estate value increases over the country over the last 24 months has been really a somewhat false demand. Why? Well, it's due to relocations, it's due to low interest rates, it's due to panic based on safety and concerns and less density and all the things that went into everybody deciding how they were gonna tackle going forward the potential that the COVID-19 or viruses like this could affect us here in the United States and how it might affect each individual's life. I know here in Texas, we're seeing a massive influx of other residents from other states who are looking for a more conservative government. They're looking for a more conservative way of life. They want more space. Texas is massive in size. We're pretty much to each their own. Everybody does their own thing. We all get along. But at the same time, we have policies in place that are pretty much promoting freedom versus mass mandates and other further restrictions. So that has created, a, a, in my view, a very false demand here in the state of Texas. The demand is real when it comes to relocation, but it's also false in that maybe the value of real estate, the demand for real estate, the repositioning within the state by residents of the state may also be giving us a great deal of artificial lift in real estate values that really may not be sustainable. In fact, I've already noticed over the last 30 to 60 days, I've been seeing much of the property I've been looking at in different real estate sites I go to. Now I'm starting to see price reduction, price reduction, price reduction. This is not just Um, property that was listed four or five months ago. This is even probably hasn't been listed as much as 30 days ago. They're going down because they realize there's not as many people knocking on the door. Um, One thing about the show I want everybody to understand is that I'm never going to tell you I'm an expert in all things. Um, I am simply a guy that spent 36 years in the investment world working with a lot of investors with varied backgrounds. I'm talking manufacturers, engineers, doctors, lawyers, I'm talking about heavy real estate investors, commercial, uh, uh, oil and gas related, cannabis farms, farmers, ranchers. I mean, pretty much the gamut. And because of that, and being an avid information person, I get a lot of data. I do a lot of research. I read really boring stuff that uh, most people would look at and say, wow, that's like reading the instruction manual to a, a nuclear plant You know, that, that bores 99% of most people. And I don't do it to try to be the smartest guy in the room. I do it so I can understand different investment sectors, so I can see what drives them. I want to see what pushes different investment sectors and how that works more in a macro picture. In my world, knowing that energy is what really generates everything in the economy, from the car you drive to the clothes you wear and the raw materials you're putting in your house, I'm really on the front line. I'm at the headwaters of the U.S. economy, because if oil and gas prices are really high, it changes the dynamics about everything. It changes what you're going to pay for your fuel and your electricity and your food. And it changes the price for your uh, interest rates. It changes the price for transportation costs as far as your car and your tires. So having been in the oil and gas space since 1985, I think it's given me a real chance to see what dynamics are affected downstream from the very core, which is energy prices. And, And as a result of that, I pay close attention to other downstream markets, as it may relate to how it's going to affect supply and demand with oil. So that's why when I come to you on the show, I come into you with, I hope, a expectation that some of the background is, is real life, real events, and it's things that make sense. But I'm going to get into cap rates. I'm going to get into where I think we might be dealing with a real cap rate compression going on. And I want to talk about how that's going to be affected by inflation. But I'd like to give you a little bit of a story about myself, because I want you to understand the kind of knucklehead I am. All right. So I grew up in a fairly poor family, great parents. I was adopted. Mom and dad got married when I was four. Uh, Dad decided to adopt uh, my three sisters and myself. So we took on his name. As I always said, he he was really crazy or drunk when he decided to do that. Who would would marry a woman and adopt four kids within the first six months and become financially responsible? But he was my dad. And and, uh, by name, I took his name. And for 25 years until he died of cancer, he was my dad. So I had a real strong ethical background because he taught me About the things in life that that every young person needed to know, whether you're a male or female. It was about honor, respect, uh, being accountable for things, and, and making yourself a productive member of society. Well, that has a lot to do with real estate because we now are looking at a real estate market where the government has decided to give people permission to have forbearance, not to pay their rent, not to pay their mortgage. And it's amazing to see, to me, I'm really, really respectful of all the individuals who could have taken that forbearance and not paid their mortgages, not paid their rent, and they chose to do so. And then you look at the other 7 to 10 million people who probably could have paid their rent, could have paid their mortgage, decided not to, and each time it comes up for a potential expiration or renewal they're almost in the back of the corner cheering up and down, give us another six months, give us a year. Now the problem is, in my view, is it really boils down to they may be so far behind, they'll never make the payment. They're so far behind, they'll never be able to catch up on that rent or that mortgage. They're now looking at how do I get out of here? When is the last day that I get this free rent, free mortgage before I dump the apartment and go to a cheaper one or I dump the house and let it go back to foreclosure? So we've got this hidden elephant in the room, which is defaults headed our way. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's going to be enormous. It's going to be large in size. The federal government's not not going to be able to, nor can they logically continue to extend this forbearance on either mortgages or rent. And somebody's going to have to pay the piper. So the key is, when will that occur? That is a risk in the real estate market today. I don't think most people are counting them. It's going to affect self-storage because if they get kicked out of their homes so they're it go back to foreclosure, they're going to need to store their material. So it could be a big increase for self-storage. They're going to be looking at lower cost of living because their credit's going to be damaged or deemed. So they're probably not going to be in that class A apartment, maybe in class B or C. The people living in homes may try to find class A and realize that maybe the, the rent payment for that class A apartment is as much as their mortgage was. They're going to be shocked. Because why? What do you think the class A multifamily owner is going to do? They're going to go up on their rates. Because why? Because there's going to be a higher demand for Class A apartments because people coming out of homes they've lost are going to need those Class A apartments to make the transition, and there's going to be a higher demand for Class A apartments. Very likely could be true. I've got very, very solid, smart investing partners of mine that are in the Class A, and that's exactly what they're counting. They're counting on people moving out of defaulted mortgages into Class A apartments. So where one person makes a mistake and falls, the other person is able to to pick up the ball and run with it. It depends on how that transition occurs. Um, so what I want to do is I want to t- tell you a little story. So, for example, how, how simple my brain works. All right. So I'm, I'm a kid. I'm 10 years old. My parents have some chickens in the backyard. We live on three acres out in the country and very simple family. You have a few goats and we're just enjoying life. When you're broke, you don't know you're broke. So you're just enjoying the moment because you can make uh, light of anything because you don't have a lot to lose. And you make games and toys out of you know boards and, and cartons and stuff. So I have these chickens back there and I notice that about every day I'm picking up about two dozen eggs in the backyard and I decide, you know, we're not gonna be able to eat all these eggs. So I asked my dad, I said, Hey dad, what are we gonna do with all these extra eggs? He goes, I, I don't know. We-, we got too many chickens. They're very uh, productive, but we're not gonna be able to keep these eggs running out of uh, spots in the refrigerator. I said, what if I went and knocked on the neighbor's doors and asked them if they wanted to buy eggs? He goes, well, that's a great idea. I said, well, how do I do it? And he said, well, eggs at the store right now are 85 cents a dozen." Why don't you put 65 cents or even 50 cents a dozen on them? They're essentially free. And you go down the street and say, look, fresh farm eggs for 20, 30 percent, 40 percent cheaper than at the store. Tell me how many dozen you want every week and I will have them delivered at your doorstep. And you can leave the coins on the, on the post or leave them on the, on the uh, rug before you walk in the door. I said, OK, so 10 years old, I walk down the street and I start knocking on doors. And before I know it, I've got eight or nine, 10 houses asking for one, two, three dozen eggs a week at 50 cents a dozen and I can put them on the porch. I mean, put the money in the porch and I'll deliver the eggs. Now, the lesson I learned is simply this. If I tried to sell at the same price as the store, then the risk that the uh, potential egg buyer, the, the neighbor down the street would think about is, how do I know these are fresh eggs? How do I know that the eggs weren't picked up last week and that they're really older eggs that Troy's delivering? How do I know that these are as good and vitamins and that they've been refrigerated and that they don't have something wrong? How do I know that Troy hasn't left them out in the heat? So because the price was lower and because of the, the ability of ease of delivery, because all the components of buying those eggs made it easier, cheaper, and, and somewhat more reliable, the customers were willing to give me a, a, a free pass on the risk that I was giving them and delivering fresh eggs that weren't in the sun, that weren't there for a week, they were truly fresh eggs. And that has to do with the elasticity or the inelasticity to the market for those eggs in that situation. The price was cheap enough, I could create demand from clients that allowed me to deliver those eggs and make a profit. So after I sold a few eggs, I started telling my dad, well, I feel like I need to pay for the seed and help you with the cost of the chickens because you know that's how I'm making money, etc. And That's one example. Uh, My second example is going to be, and this does play back to real estate, I'm getting there. Um, The second example is, is how um, I used to work at a cattle auction when I was about 13 or 14. I got a job on the weekends and I was working, loading and unloading cattle that were brought in every weekend to be sold. And eventually after about a year, the auctioneer decided that he wanted to move me to be an auctioneer's assistant. The guy that sits behind the auctioneer and as the cattle come through, Back in the day when you didn't have all these fancy computers, my job was to record the cow coming in, the number, the sales price, et cetera, et cetera. And I was going to record all the data sitting behind him in a desk. And as the sale took place, I'd pass it down a conveyor belt and everybody in the office would record the sale, the price. So I'm watching all these cattle and calves coming through. And I noticed that every time these smaller calves would come through, they looked a little bit undernourished. Maybe they were, I don't know, three months old, four months, five months old. I noticed they were skinny, they were not quite as big, and I noticed that they would bring quite a bit less per pound than the ones that looked healthier. And so I asked the auctioneer, I said, why are those calves looking like they're uh, they're going for so much less money per pound than the more thicker, healthier calves? He said, well, because the buyers don't want to take the time to fatten them up to bring them up to par. So when they see undernourished cattle, they assume two things. In a larger purchase where they've got 100, 200 calves, they're probably going to get trampled on, run over. They're probably going to get sicker or weaker because it is kind of the uh, uh, fittest are going to survive, of the fittest. So he said they don't buy them. They don't want to take the chance that they'll die. They don't want to take a chance on spending extra money to fatten them up. And they already are starting behind the eight ball. They're starting behind the other calves in terms of being able to gain weight for future use. I said, well, why would I not buy those calves, take them home for about a month, let them eat grass and hay in my pasture, bring them back. In good condition, and I'll get the increased weight that they gain, but I'll also get the normalized par price per pound. He goes, It's a great idea. If you've got the ability to take those calves and to use those calves and create profit or an arbitrage, think you ought to do it. So I'm like 14 years old. I start buying calves and I start doing it. About every four or five weeks, I'd buy calves, take them all, fatten them up on the grass and hay that we had in our pasture, and I take them back. And I was making, I don't know, $25, $30, $50 of the calf, depending on the weight gain. Now What I'm pointing out is as follows. Um, If you look at real estate following that example, it's as follows. If you have rental properties that you can put into the marketplace at a rate that is lower than the alternative, then you're always going to be as near occupancy as you can. If you raise your rate for rents and get to become almost normalized with all the other alternative choices, then you lose a lot of the arbitrage opportunity for a higher occupancy and maybe you don't want higher occupancy. Maybe you'd rather have 85% occupancy versus 100% at a higher rate, less wear and tear on your building, but you've already factored in that 15% uh, lack of occupancy into your overall numbers. Have lower occupancy, charge higher rates, still make the same or more money. The same thing would apply to the eggs. I mean, if I had gone out at 65 cents a dozen and I was par with the store, I might've only picked up three customers instead of eight customers. And at that point in time, I'm not really giving them an arbitrage. I'm not giving them a value. I'm just giving them maybe convenience out of anything by delivering it. So when you think about real estate, you've got to look at your competitive alternative uh, choices in that market. Self-storage is one. Uh, You got to figure out what somebody's charging for self-storage, ease of access, and all the components that go into self-storage and decide, am I going to be the most expensive person, but I have less occupancy and I'm actually making a higher net income. This is the things that I think that have to do with false demand. I'm, I'm listening to a lot of these successful real estate uh, players. I listen to their comments. And to be candid with you, a lot of the ones I'm talking to have only been really heavy into real estate the last 10 to 12 years. In other words, they have not been through a down cycle yet. And as a result, I keep hearing the same thing like, oh, no, don't worry. I'm taking class B's and I'm selling them or leveraging really up to class A. I'm not worried about the class A apartments because they're going to have all the people that default on their mortgages coming in, like I said in the first half of the show. So you're going to take people who just got foreclosed on as your credit worthy individual that's going to come rent your class A apartment. Hmm. I don't know if I'd be looking at that as a strong suit or or not so strong, but I wouldn't be that encouraged that the credit worthiness of those new renters is that great. Um, I'm also looking at their character, the fact they were willing to walk in their house and not pay their rent or pay their mortgage. Makes me wonder, would they also use forbearance on rent if that continues uh, as far as the way the stimulus package has been the last two years? So there's a lot of factors that go into it. I and mean, when I take a look at the, the calf example I gave you, it, to me, it's pretty simple. It's that, it's that willingness to look and pay attention and make observations. You know, so let's talk about how that might apply. So if I were looking at a normal cattle auction week to week, I kind of get a pattern for what somebody's willing to pay for a full grown cow or maybe a mother cow and a calf, or maybe a calf that needs to be fattened up. So there's different levels of cattle that come through. Well, there's different levels of real estate. There's residential, self-storage, industrial parks, commercial buildings, retail buildings, office complex, et cetera. And I start thinking to myself, well, a normal pattern of investing is to look at the cap rate. I want to see you know, basically what the uh, the income looks like compared to the, uh, the cost of the building to operate. It. I want to see what it looks like. So it's, it's the return on my investment that I'm interested in. So the way it would work is I'm looking across a comparative market. Let's use uh, self-storage. And I go out and I look at 10 self-storage facilities. I equalize them as best I can, kind of like an appraisal, what they will be in relation to the location, ease of access, uh, climate control, non-climate control, outside storage. I try to get as much equalized things as I can. And then I get down to the point point, say, all right, one is... One particular self storage costs at cost X and it makes this percentage net operating income. The other one is Y and it makes this percentage net operating income. And as the market starts to become a little bit overheated, I start asking myself: Do I have a false market? Do I truly have a uh, occupancy rate for self storage that is normal, or do I have self storage being directly affected? Short term, as a result of some outlying factor. So when I start to see too much liquidity in the market, it's going to create it's going to create a false cap rate. So while it may be tempting to assume lower cap rates, may also assume lower risk. I mean, the lower the rates means better tenants, better income, uh, uh, cost of operations are somewhat fixed or at least they're they're measurable. So the lower the cap rate, I'm assuming it's lower risk, but that may not be true because there may be other factors in the market, such as maybe there's an increase in property value. Maybe values of self storage have gone up because the cost to build new self storage is so expensive because of raw materials or shortages, a uh, supply disruption like we have today. Maybe there's just uh, a rate compression on cap rate because there's just too much cash. If everybody's sitting around with all this liquidity and we know inflation's running at five, six, seven percent, Anything less than inflation, I'm losing money. So there is just enormous amounts of cash, liquid cash chasing deals. So maybe that cap rate has been pushed way lower by pure competition of capital deployment. So what I'm saying to you is, when you look at an arbitrage, when you look at real estate in a macro sense, it also has to do with looking at those outlying uh, interruptions to that market that may give you a bad reading or one you may have to take into consideration. So for example, right now we have this really, really high liquidity. We have very, very low interest rates. I've heard this from several of my partners in say, Oh man, we're getting non-recourse loans. We don't we'll put our equity in. We know that's we're at risk. Man, if the market turns against us, we're all we're risking is our equity. We're not gonna have to pay that $30 million apartment complex or that $10 million self-storage because it's non-recourse. We couldn't get that four or five years ago. Well, what's going to change? Well, when people start defaulting, they're gonna get rid of that non-recourse. Now it'll be recourse, so it will change the metrics or dynamics of our investing in those properties. Well, when I also think about the cap rate uh, compression, it also makes me think about how that's going to affect uh, future sales. Because if we recognize that today's valuation, how much these properties are being valued is because we have this liquidity chasing it and people are competing to put money to work. They're selling out of other properties and they're doing 1031 tax exchanges into new properties. It's almost like funny money because I've had my real estate I bought in 2008 go up significantly since 2008. I've got a big profit in there. I'm willing to buy another property in today's environment knowing I'm probably paying a artificially suppressed cap rate, but I can give myself a margin of five, 10, 20% because I know how much money I've made in the last 12 years. I know that although I may be overpaying, I'm still able to save the taxes By doing a 1031 exchange, so therefore I'm willing to buy that new property, knowing most likely I'm overpaying for it. Well, this is an artificial market. This is a market that's false. Because why? When one of those components slows down or stops, the train stops. And sometimes the train falls off the tracks. For example, the feds have to go up on interest rates. Now my net operating income is not going to be as high because now I'm going to be looking at things, well, really, you know, the net operating income is not being affected by cost of capital, but it is going to be harder because I'm going to have less buyers in the market. The higher interest rates means the more equity I've got to put down, the more expensive it is to pay for that property if I'm not an all cash buyer. So I'm going to see some of those potential buyers maybe start to be a little more choosy on what they purchase. Maybe the cost of capital is going to put pressure on their credit. Maybe the cost of capital makes a current Potential acquisition, just the numbers don't work. But what else is going to affect that not net operating income in a true, true fashion? Because interest rates don't actually go to the net NOI, but it's going to be um, uh, recession ideas. Like maybe we have a lowering of labor. Maybe we have all these people that are on stimulus come out to work and they can't get jobs, and all of a sudden now they can't pay the rent, and the forbearance goes away. So our occupancy rate goes down, less income. Okay, it's going to be a high. It's going to be a lower percentage of, of rate of return as a result of less. Uh, income generated because you have lower occupancy inside of your apartment. What happens to your self-storage? See, like here in Dallas, it's hard to even find a self-storage unit. I mean, it's just crazy. You talk about a one-time event. Here's what's happened. We had a big freeze back in February and everybody's homes got damaged because pipes broke. They filled up all their stuff and all these self-storage units. Then you have all these people selling their houses with nowhere to go because they're selling at the top of the market. And so they're putting them in self-storage. So you literally have waiting lists for self-storage in the city of Dallas-Fort Worth right now. as a a result of So guess what's happening to the cap rate if you wanted to sell a self-storage? Probably couldn't be a better time to sell it. Is that a true valuation of the self-storage facility? Could be if everybody maintains keeping their stuff in those self-storage units, or maybe as these homes get repaired and the pipes get repaired and the floors and sheetrock get repaired, they start emptying those self-storage going back to their homes. And also now you start seeing a decrease in occupancy rates at self-storage. So all of a sudden now what you paid today at 98% occupancy, is now more like 85% occupancy, and maybe your cap rate doesn't look as strong. Same thing with apartments. Let's say that rent forbearance goes away. Now everybody's got to pay their rent. Many of them who are been under forbearance goes, I just can't pay the rent, so I'm going to have to move to a cheaper, lower cost, maybe a level B, grade C type of apartment, a class B or C apartment. And so, therefore, you'll see an exodus from some of these apartments as a result of transition. Cap rate compression, I think, is really real today. Now, one of the things I would like to also just kind of leave everybody with or at least talk about in the last few minutes of the show is what does all this have to do with money and life? Well, in my world, many of you own your own homes. A lot of you. Most of the listeners I have probably own their own homes. Very few are are renters who listen to this kind of boring nonsense, you know? And I say it's only boring because if you don't have a passion for what you're talking about or what you're doing, it doesn't matter. In my case, I'm looking at the real estate market and I'm really starting to see similar signs in the real estate market as I did back in 2008 and in previous corrections in the market. This one's going to be uniquely different. And this one's going to be uniquely different because we've had a lot of interference in the market conditions of things that normally don't happen. And they're kind of uncharted territory. We never shut down globally for 60 to 90 days like we did before. We never had a government mandate that says you don't have to pay your rent or mortgage. We've never factored that into our equation. We've never factored into the fact we had such a a migration of Americans across the country just picked up and moved as a result of repositioning themselves for what they believe to be the next 10 to 20 years of where they want to live if, in fact, we end up with an additional type of uh, pandemic. Um, I'm going to leave you with the thought of the day from Troy Eckerd. Remember, I'm talking with the text and money and life, but I'm also a guy that's trying to give you some forethought. I would think today the best thing you can do is start deciding what type of real estate you want to own or continue to own in your portfolio. You need to start making the decision about your holding time because that holding time is going to be significantly changed here very shortly. In other words, you may not have a chance to exit at the top of the market because I think the top of the market is eroding. You're going to be looking at higher interest rates. So if you're using interest rates and financing, you're going to have to start factoring in much higher interest rates. And those interest rates are going to continue to rise because we've got about $7 trillion in recent debt the government has to pay off. You only pay that off with inflation. I think you're also going to have to start factoring in very carefully what's going to happen to the various types of property you acquire. And in my world, what I'm looking at and what I think is going to be the play, I think the play for me is going to be buying raw land. I think if I can have raw land with low holding costs, And it's in areas where I have confidence the next 10 years there's going to be an expansion or growth in these uh, inner cities, meaning they're going out to the suburbs and beyond. If that's the case, one of the things I think will be the highest supply shortage is going to be raw land and develop residential lots because virtually every residential lot in the country has been completely taken up and a house built on it. So as I give you the the, uh, sayonara and the the goodbye for today on the show, think about where you're going to be. Think about how you're going to play the game. Think about this cap rate compression and just think and ask to yourself, am we, are we, am I at the end of the real estate bubble that's been here for 13 years or do you think it can continue? I'm gonna tell you, I think the bubble's about to pop. It just depends on where you are whenever it does. So I'm Troy Eckert. I am talking with the Texan. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, feel free to call me anytime on the number 866-472-5790. Go out, be successful, enjoy life because there's nothing else to do but just take it one day at a time.
0: Thanks to all our incredible friends for joining Troy for today's show. Talk with the Texan money and life. Please join your host Troy Eckert for another edition of the program every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific time and 5 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America business channel. Follow Troy, engage him, challenge him. But most importantly, listen to him. Three decades of expertise at your disposal. We'll see you here next week.